Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Michael Dawson Connor to the show. Michael is an accomplished singer, actor, and composer. His compositions range choral, chamber, and solo vocal works, with an emphasis on slave songs created before the Civil War. Born in Jamestown, New York, Michael received his performance and vocal training from Carnegie Mellon University and LaCole Hindemith in Vevey, Switzerland. His Broadway credits include, among many others, the Tony Award-winning productions of Ragtime and Showboat. He's performed solo works for President Ronald Reagan, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the Reverend Billy Graham, and many others. His TV credits include shows like Friends and Extreme Makeover Home Edition, and he continues to tour internationally as a featured soloist with the historic Roger Wagner Chorale. His book, The Slave Letters, is available on Amazon, and I'm very excited to hear more about the story behind that one in particular because I know that it is something that is very dear to Michael's heart. So let's get to it. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hello, Nick. How are you? I'm doing really well, man. I'm doing really well. I'm thrilled (laughs) to have you here. I'm going to come right out and say it. I had a production snafu. We'd already done this introduction once before, and then my Zoom H6 shut off, and so now this is the second time that I've introduced Michael. Michael, how is number two compared to number one? Oh my God, it's so much better, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. I'm so glad. Oh my God. The audience isn't missing anything. Such a pleasure being here with you. I've been looking forward to this In these COVID times, this is a way to get close to people. So thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I absolutely share that same sentiment. It was a a very important experience for me, very meaningful to do this show for a year during COVID. And I'm thrilled to have you on the show, Michael. It was instantly clear to me that upon talking to you, you you're a very open and a generous person with your thoughts and perspectives. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing about your life story and your spiritual journey. And right now I want to hear a little bit more about the slave letters. So please tell me about how that came about for you, how telling this particular story came about for you, and what do you have planned for it in the future? Well, it was one of those things, Nick, that was a surprise to me because I grew up in suburbia. I went to a great university and I was surrounded by the European aesthetic in art, in music, everything. And the only pull I had to my ancestors was through my grandmother. And her mother, her mother's mother was a slave in Virginia. Wow. And my grandmother is just this holy, holy woman. I can say that she wasn't allegedly holy. She was truly holy. And Mm. I think she was illiterate, but she always had her Bible with her. And somehow she planted these seeds in me for the songs and the stories of my people, especially the songs. This is a woman, they called her Mother Plummer. Her name was Lucille Plummer. And she would get up in her little church just whenever the spirit moved her. And she would just start. The minister would be mid-sentence. And she just felt like it was time to sing a song. Are you kidding me? Oh, oh, I am not kidding you. And she... That is so beautiful and pure. My gosh. Oh, yeah. And she wasn't obnoxious. She just took seriously the fact of the Holy Spirit, which I don't think many people really take that seriously. They talk about it, but I actually saw her living it she would get up and the minister would see her get up because she was a large, short woman. And you'd hear, I've been buked and I've been scored. The minister would sit down and for the next 20 minutes, the whole church would go ballistic. Wow. They would join in and there'd be tambourines. There would be hand clapping. And when I say there was pandemonium, for 20 minutes. I mean, you really 
feel like the walls are shaking. Wow. But somehow she planted these seeds in me. And I and I love singing Bach. He's he's one of my favorites. And and Mozart and all the greats, Brahms, Fauré, all of them. But there's something that was unlocked in me. And it can only be attributed to my grandmother. I know other classical artists who will not sing spirituals, other African-American classical artists, because for so long we've been marginalized and told that that's all white audiences really want to hear from us is sing a Negro spiritual. And Leontine Price got it. All the greats got it. Paul Robeson got it. They tried to be put in this box of you're African-American, you're black. So the best you can hope for is just to sing, entertain us with one of your slave songs. Wow. Slave songs or spirituals. It's six of one, half dozen of another. That's what they are. I found the slave letters in the Smithsonian archives and they have thousands of pages of these letters that have been collected over the decades. There's also museums like the Huntington Gardens and Library, and they have a repository of them. However, no one knows that they have them except a few because their focus, as has been told to me by some of the high and mighty people at the Huntington, they're only interested in the Japanese, the Chinese, and the Caucasian audiences. They're not really looking for outreach for African-Americans. Wow, that's really, I'm a member of the Huntington because I love the Huntington Garden so much. I bring my son there a lot. And my wife and I love going there. And it's an extraordinary place. They do have a lot of beautiful pieces of literature there as well in the library. But that is shocking to hear them, to hear you say you've heard from people that this is a section of what they've, gathered that they don't feel is worth display? Right. And I went to pitch my project, the slave letters, to them. Let me back up and say the slave letters is a musical and literary journey through my people's struggle with slavery, through slavery. So there'll be a bit of music and then there'll be a slide showing some of the actual slaves and what they looked like and what they wore and how they were represented in the 19th century. Mm. And then there'll be reading one of their actual letters. Now, when I found these letters in the Smithsonian, many of them were, were, well, almost all of them because the people were illiterate, could not read, could not write, but they were able to peck out a few words, even if they were misspelled. So what I did is I took some of these letters in a very small book, married them with pictures of various slaves to give people a flavor. And I edited them so that people could actually read them. Hmm. The performance highlights the grit and the wonderful persistence that these people had. My ancestors, and I'm very proud to say that, Most people would look at these ill-kempt people and say, oh my God, they look like street people. Well, there but for God, they would have been homeless uh, being brought to this country and forced to work for free and beaten and, and all those terrible things. So I try to give, it's not a pretty fairy story or anything. This is true grit. And they're gorgeous songs, which they composed out in the fields working all day. You get a sense of their belief system that if they worked hard enough, they would go to their heavenly home. They would find something good at the end of this horrible, rocky road. And that's in every single one of their songs. And of course, they were thought to be very stupid people because their English wasn't so good because they were Africans. But they used many of these songs as message songs, so embedded in all the verses was the fact that people were going to escape that night and Mm. how they were going to get out. They also did it in their quilts. For stupid people, they were pretty brilliant in my book. They outsmarted these people who thought they were so supreme. And uh, many of them did get to escape. 
Not enough. But enough. if it hadn't been for those escapes, I wouldn't be here. Michael, it's humbling to hear you talk about this. And one of the things I love about this show is that I find different ways of connecting to other people's pain through their journey. This is not your particular pain. We'll learn more about your challenges in life as you talk about some of the things in your life, specifically this story, which is just such a, an epic story. It is a story that has so much import on everything that exists in our life. Slavery touches everything. It does, only if you allow it. I think in my early life, I didn't, like a lot of other African-Americans who even to this day want to forget that we were chattel. We were just like a farm implement. Mm. We, were, we were something that could be bought and sold at a whim or used sexually, whether it was a man being a, a stud. And a lot of people don't even want to talk about the, the sexual component to slavery because everything that came, say you purchase a woman or purchase a man, if they have children, those children also belong to you hmm. and you can sell them at a whim. And the lighter they are, the more expensive they are. The darker they are, the cheaper they are. Ingenious uh, malevolence. Oh, well, if I'm white and I have sex with this black slave, I can get some. They graded them into fancy, extra fancy, high yellow. And this is why sometimes people will use the term mulatto, M-U-L-A-T-T-O. I don't use slave owner terms willingly in my life. You'll never hear me say high yellow or high yeller. I've never even heard high yellow. I certainly remember hearing the word mulatto. But... And, and black people use it amongst ourselves. And, and I, I want to say to them, you know those are slave owner terms, right? Sometimes we imprison ourselves. But getting back to what I was saying before, I wanted to run as far as I could away from the shameful shame. I, you know, there's not much shame today, but when I used to think of the slaves being beaten and mistreated and the inhuman conditions and someone could just walk up to you and start whipping you mm. because they felt like it. Maybe they woke up on the wrong side of the bed. And so I, I kept it at arm's length and then it insinuated itself into my soul. And I realized these songs have such, such depth, depth of meaning, depth of emotion. They take me to a place that no Mozartian song could ever take me hmm. because they're, they're written literally with the blood of people. People's anguish is just singing through every note of these songs. Hmm. And so when I sing them, I'm very conscious of upholding the honor and the strength of my people who went through so much just so that they could, like ghosts standing in the night, they could tell people they once existed. Wow, Michael, that is very, very powerful. And it's really lovely to hear you share about not only just the research and work and study, but the fact that it brings so much emotion and passion and reflection out of you. And so I appreciate you sharing about it. Well, Nick, I wanted to add this if it's okay, Nick. Sure. I appreciate you asking me the questions you asked because I don't get to talk about this every day because most people aren't open to hearing about what their ancestors did to my ancestors. Mm. You know, and not in a cruel way. It's not willful. It's just that we, we shy away from bad news. We shy away from horrors that happen. I heard people say, oh, just get over it. Slavery was a long time ago. And yet, 
on Colorado Boulevard in Pasadena every day I walk there or drive there, I see the marks of it on people's faces that I pass. And I'm talking about black people. And, and I'm sure it's on my face because I, I have some of the same fears that they have. Even though I'm not poor and I have all the clothes I need and I have shoes. But uh, yeah, I, I worry when I get stopped hmm. by the police. Has working on the slave letters given you voice to these types of concerns that you just referenced, the kind of underlying general fear of walking around or, as you said, seeing it on others' faces and your face? Bringing the slave letters into your life and then out into the world, has it helped contextualize in some way your daily challenges and, and pains? I think that's, uh, that's a great question. I, I think it has, I think it does. I think that I know who I am. I'm, I'm a human being. I don't need to, to walk around and say, I'm a man. <laughs> I know I'm a guy, but, uh, my soul is pure human being. And I look at people in pain, whether it's people who mourn the Armenian genocide, whether it's people who are imprisoned in concentration camps here in the United States and all their property stolen, or whether it's the Nazi Holocaust or the Jewish Holocaust. My heart breaks for people who are marked by huge events like that. And so it, it makes me realize there's a whole bunch of people out there, Nick, who have never healed from 400 years of being victimized. And it's a, it's a really difficult thing to realize because there's, I have no answer. I just hope that by bringing the slave letters and the, and the slaves' music out into the world, it can maybe... <laughs> One person at a time will hear it and get some solace and, and get some strength. I recently sang for Brigadier General Charles McGee, and he's one of the last of the Tuskegee Airmen. Mm. He's 102 years old. Wow. So I know where he comes from emotionally. He's a very proud man. I got to spend a couple minutes alone with him, far from prying ears or eyes. And he's done a lot. Without him, I probably wouldn't be here. Sometimes people say that, uh, and it's not true, but in this case it is. And he said something in his halting, whispered voice. He said to me, just keep going on persistence is the greatest key in the world. Mm -hmm. It will unlock those doors. And so I look at someone like him who saved so many people's butts in World War II with his gang of red tails. When they didn't even, he told stories of how they wouldn't even allow them after they'd saved hundreds of people's lives. Charles McGee wasn't allowed to eat in the lunchroom. With, with the white soldiers. And so him saying that to me, just keep going on. I'm trying to say that through my ancestors' words in these slave letters, just keep going on. If we can get through slavery, we can get through anything. Michael, I get so much from hearing these types of stories and this type of information and this type of sharing and I appreciate it so much. We're going to hang up this first segment and we're going to dive into your life and so much more after the break. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list.
Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners, and it means a lot to me because I read them, and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everyone, we're back with Michael. Michael, you you started talking about how important your grandmother was to you, how impressionable, and how she helped open the world of the spirituals of your of your ancestors to you. And I wanted to know why, one, why it is that you specifically speak about your grandmother and and not your parents. And I wanted to know, too, on a on a personal level, do you carry your grandmother's voice? Is that is your voice her voice? <laughs> oh my God. No one has ever asked me that before hmm. oh my god do i carry my grandmother's voice well i sure hope to god i do because i think i do wow yeah <laughs> oh my god how did you do that nick that's amazing i think she poured it into me and i'll tell you a secret so there i was a little kid in pittsburgh pennsylvania i first lived in Jamestown, New York, and then we left there. And I would run up the hill to see my my grandma, and she'd always say, oh, there's Mr. Mike with the distinguished voice. Mm. Not distinguished, but distinguished. Oh. <laughs> and, and of course, I'm a, a child, four, five, six, seven, eight years old. No one has a distinguished voice at that age and yet she pulled she saw something in me and she pulled that out of me and i guess not i guess we're friends here we can be honest she poured herself into me you know so that i could have these songs and have these memories that slowly began to surface in my life with the music and uh, that's, I'm kind of shocked you asked me that. Oh, that's a lovely reaction. Okay, so tell me why not your parents? Why only your grandmother? My father um, was a brutal man. Oh. He was a, a high school and college professor in romance languages. Very very learned, learned. He won a Fulbright award. And, and back then, they weren't giving out to African Americans these very easily. So he was so brilliant. I mean, this is an extraordinary award. I just wanted to, I didn't want to chime in right away, but I, this is an award that's very difficult for anyone to achieve. And yes, I can only imagine how much extra weight it carried for him that being an African-American, he would have won it. That's extraordinary. Yeah, and I, but I remember him when he would go to Europe and he would come back. I think he would go to, in the summers to sharpen his language skills. And, uh, and he was completely fluent in all these different romance languages. Hmm. And he was enraged because in Europe, when he was in Spain, when he was in France, France, I think, was his favorite. But when he was there, he was a, a godling. He was a prince among men. And when he came back to the United States, he was the N-word. He hated it. And because he couldn't act out with white people, he would come home and brutalize his wife and his four kids. Hmm. And... And of course, I was his favorite to brutalize. And, uh, oh. and it, well, maybe I just felt it. Uh, well, from my vantage point, I got it the worst. And the really bad part was he showed such a great face. He was this magnificent actor. And so when he was in his school, all the kids loved him, adored him, wanted to be his child. Hmm. And they would come up to us on the street. Are you Mr. Connor's son? And he, I'd see them gang up on my sister. Are you Mr. Connor's daughter? And 
we learned very quickly that we had to lie uh, and say, oh, yes, he's such a wonderful person. You can't imagine or else we would get the snot beat out of us again. So that's why I don't really, I'm, I'm glad they're dead. I don't miss them. I, you know, I still have marks on my body from the, the beatings I, I've taken. Oh. And that's, that's life, right, Nick? I mean, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it is your life. It's a lot of people's yeah. life. It's and everybody has griefs in their lives. And so I'm not, I don't feel I was a victim because somebody who outweighed me by a, 150 pounds was kicking me down the stairs every day or, or pummeling me with fists. Um, oh, Michael. But, you know, years on the therapy couch or crawled into the fetal position. I'm pretty good now. What position were you in the order of siblings? I was the second oldest. So there's my brother and there's me. And then there's my two sisters beneath me. How did your siblings survive this? My brother is the only other one who's really a whole person. Um, my sisters battle major depressions. Well, I think it's just the way anybody who's been uh, brutalized unrelentingly for years after a while becomes like an animal. You're just looking for kindness wherever you can find it. And sometimes or often those places don't serve you well. Does that make sense? Yes. It, it also means that it intimates that there's a lot of other pain in the growing. Oh, oh yeah. Pain begets pain. Unfortunately. That's why when I see parents taking really good care of their kids, I just, I just want to go over to them and hand them money. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that said? Like I, I know your son, uh, who's going to come and see my little Jurassic Garden. Mm -hmm. I know that you're not a monster, and that you are only have his best thoughts and prayers. Anyway, well, I mean, I'm not perfect, but I, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not a the monster. story you're telling. Yeah. So how does your mother play into this? The grandmother you adore and speak so lovingly of, that's your mother's side of the family, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Yes. And, and my grandfather, who was married to my grandmother, was a terrible human being. Treated her abominably. Mm. Horrible. So it, it's a thread that runs through African-American families. I, I don't, I do know why it happens because we have been abused for our entire length of days in this country. Ever since we were brought here, we were pieces of merchandise. And so our humanity has literally been bred out of us mm. in ways. And so there's a lot of violence because... And part of it is we are so angry and we can't show our anger. See, white people are allowed to show their anger, their fits of pique. We, they can, I watch way too many YouTube or Facebook videos where white people go up to someone and say, um, may I see your ID? May I see your papers? No black person has ever done that in the history of the United States because we know the place we occupy. We are the servant class. We are the ones who, no matter how rich we become, we are the ones who serve or entertain. So, I mean, thank you for sharing that. I don't, I, it's painful and it's sad uh, and it's tragic. But I I don't appreciate feel the, the thoughts. Sadness, Nicholas. I don't feel the 
I mean, I, I'm sure there's sadness, but I, I'm just stating the facts mm. that because we talk about India and how there's a caste system there. Or in England, there's lords and ladies and dukes and duchesses and and then there's the servant class and everything in between. And in the United States, we have it just as hard as all the other countries. We don't talk about it like that. Hmm. But but that's it's just it's just the the cold, cruel facts. Stainless steel. So, Michael, did you know as a child that your grandfather abused your grandmother the way that your parents abused you? I did not. I only found this out when my grandmother died way too young. I think she was maybe early 70. But her mother, my great-grandmother, Amanda Wiggins, whose mother was the slave in Virginia, she lived till she was 96. So there's long lifelines in our family, but he just mistreated her to my grandmother to the point one day she just died. And everybody all, they had seven kids of which my mother was one and they all knew about this, but it was the deep, dark secret, which I've learned uh, abusers usually get protected by silence. And, and, my mother made a big, at the funeral, which I, I I don't know where I was. I think I might have been in Europe at the time, but I couldn't be there. And she made a big deal about jumping into the, the hole in the ground and screaming, mother, mother. And I was like, I, I just looked at her and laughed. And I said, I don't understand why you're pretending you care so much. If you had really cared, you would have protected your mother. She had several rental houses. She could have taken one of them and dedicated it to her mother. But I guess that's guilt speaking. And your mother was not a safe space and able to protect her own children from her husband. Oh, no. And she's a PhD. She got her PhD at a time, again, when they weren't giving out the Fulbright scholarships. And my father always resented my mother that she got her, her doctorate before he got his. Hmm. And so every Friday, I think it was every two weeks was payday. And we knew there was going to be a major beating happening on that Friday because the paychecks came and hers was always bigger than his. Wow! And so he would beat the snot out of her and then take her paycheck. And these are PhDs. I am floored. Well, you did ask the question, Nick. (laughs) I just... How long does it take you to be able to tell this story the way you're telling it to me I wonder that I'm still alive, Nick. I I wonder that I'm still here. I, I just... Because I've had a couple episodes in my life where I thought, how much more can I take? When did they die? My mother died about a year ago. Oh, wow. This is recent. Oh, yeah. And it's just like a, a wonderful weight off my my neck. And, and it, it's, I, I laugh. When I really do laugh when, when I hear people say, oh, but it's your mother. You have to always respect your mother. And, and I just look at them and, and laugh and say, someone who molested their kids, I, I wasn't molested, but do you say the same thing to someone who burns their kids with uh, matches or cigar butts or, or watches as they're molested? I I. I think you have to be very careful about respecting people who don't deserve respect. Mm. In my world, which I've carefully curated or crafted, I respect people who are kind and generous and decent. And if they happen to be a relative, I'll love them all the more. But 
the flip side is no one can pass my threshold uh, who is not a good person. I just won't allow it. Hmm. And I'm sure that's the same with you too. You, you guard your, you have to guard your sanctuary. It takes an enormous amount of strength, an enormous amount of work to draw those boundaries for yourself, especially in your position. Oh, boundaries are everything, everything. I recently came upon someone who had uh, savaged me or no, she, she hadn't, she had allowed some other people to just 20 plus years ago, I missed out on a big job, a singing gig or an acting gig. I'm can't, it's so long. I can't remember, but this woman could have, she's royalty in Pasadena. She could have easily stopped it and said, Oh, Michael's a great person. You know, what you're saying about him isn't true. It was just jealousy and falsehoods mixed up. And she called me during the, the beginning of the black lives matter movement. So it's like a year and a half ago when she woke up enough and she called me 20 years ago. I mean, she said, I apologize for, for what I did. I, I should have spoken up for you. <laughs> and I said to her, if I had watched someone molest you or beat you or rape you, and I called you 20 years after the fact and said, I'm so sorry I didn't do anything. What would your reaction be to me? And she had no answer. And, and maybe if I was a better Buddhist or a better human, I could have said to her, oh, I forgive you. I have no forgiveness in my heart for people who willfully stand by and let horrible atrocities take place. You know, I recently wrote a song. I actually wrote it a while ago, <laughs> but I recently recorded it, Nick. And it's called One More Silent Night. And I don't, I'm not in the habit of writing pop songs because I'm a classical musician and I don't really know the pop world. Or, But this is a little lullaby and it's told from the vantage point of a homeless person. And I was so thrilled because I thought, oh my gosh, this might shine the light on homelessness in America. And, uh, and I see so many people who are just downtrodden and unwashed and unkempt and their feet are bleeding and they're pustules. And I just think they're human beings. How can this be? And I quickly realized as beautiful as I thought the song was, nobody really wanted to hear it because it's too uncomfortable. And I said, and this realization came to me the other day. Oh my gosh. I'm trying to give voice to the voiceless. And it's like batting your head into the wall over and over again, because eventually people will hear, but it's not easy trying to get them to. Michael, I'm really enjoying this conversation. This is really, this is the stuff I just love to talk about. And I want to talk more about your own spirituality and that journey in the third segment, okay? So we'll say goodbye for another moment and we'll be back in a minute. All right, everybody, we're back with Michael in our final segment. Michael, you have shared so generously about, and so shockingly calmly, you know, it's so impactful when someone can say without equivocation and with such honest authority is maybe not the right word, but it is an authority on the subject. It's, uh, it hits home hard, you know, you're not asking for my pity. You're just telling me the truth. And that's very impressionable. And I want to know more about your spiritual journey, because I know really the only thing I know about your spiritual journey is that you are a Buddhist, but you certainly wouldn't have started there. <laughs> so 
How do you find your way there? And how does your spiritual journey inform your ability to be where you are today? The eloquence with which you can talk about this troubled history. Well, Nick, I have been studying Buddhism for a little over 10 years now, but I didn't start out that way. I started out at my grandmother's knee. She was an ardent Christian, as I've mentioned, but more than that, she was this just deeply empathetic, kind, lovely woman. I just wanted to be like her. So I stayed at the fair of Christianity far longer than it was serving me for my needs. You know, I, I always wondered about Christianity and Christians because they would always talk about Jesus Christ as though, you know, he was the best thing that ever existed. And in my adolescent or not fully formed brain, I always thought of him as bringing the good news to man and women. <laughs> but I see him as a mailman. Mm -hmm. I see him bringing a beautiful package to your house. But instead of opening the package and actually consuming what's inside, people are worshiping the mailman. And it drives me crazy. That, that is a really cool metaphor. <laughs> but it, it, that, that people, they talk about Jesus at the name of Jesus and all this stuff. And they won't even open the package, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Honor your father and mother, which I don't do because I have issues with that. But that's all just gone because they're so clouded with this Jesus worship. I think he would be just so angry at how his message has been perverted. But anyway, I finally realized one day it was in a shining moment that I just could not be a part of a religion that was so cruel to me personally. I've suffered the worst calamities at the hands of Christians. And the funny, and it really is funny, the thing Christians will say is, well, well, what happened? Like they want to they pass judgment on my life experience. <laughs> and then they'll say, well, those people weren't really Christians. And I want to say, yes, they were. They believed in their Bible and they were savage. And, and I finally looked at the history of Christianity in the South in the 1940s and 50s and 60s. And all those policemen who sprayed my people with fire hoses and set the dogs on my people to bite and maim and abuse those people who just wanted to have the equal rights of sitting at a lunch counter, they were all Christians. They all were in churches, all white churches, on Sunday morning. And as Martin Luther King Jr., I believe it was him, said the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning, 10 o'clock. Mm. And he's right. And he's still right. So it's very difficult for me to respect Christianity when I see so many horrible things being done in Jesus the Christ's name. And I don't know if he approved or not. I mean, this is a guy who looked at his mother who was weeping and said, woman, what have I to do with thee? I mean, it sounds like he's mocking his mother for being sad that he's nailed to a cross. So that doesn't seem very nice to me. And, and a lot of Christians don't seem very empathetic or kind. Some of the most racist things that, and I won't go into that because that's just, but some of the most racist things that I've ever experienced have been being a, a paid soloist at churches. Michael, tell me, do you want to talk about that shining moment where you made the decision to leave and where it set you off and how long it took you to find the port 
of Buddhism, if you'll allow the metaphor? <laughs> sure. Uh, I'd gone to Japan, traveled to Japan to be in a commercial for lemon liqueur. So I was there for 10 days while they shot this commercial. It was in the winter and they had these incredible gardens in Japan. And so I was in this this monastery <laughs> I'd stumbled to, go figure. And I'm standing there in my beaver hat, and my military coat. And there's this ginkgo tree that's in full gold leaf because it's winter. Mm. All of a sudden, this uh, monk comes out. And I'm standing there motionless, like afraid that a, any movement will cause him to flee. And he rings his chime and he begins chanting. And of course, I didn't know what he was saying. And I sat down on this granite hewn step and I just started sobbing mm -hmm. because it somehow struck a chord in me that I didn't know was missing. It just seemed so simple what he was doing. And then when I got back home, I was at this terrible church that I used to sing at. And I was walking down the aisle and all of a sudden I just broke down. It was around Easter and I was sobbing and I made it. I wasn't able to sing as I was walking down, which is my job to be singing with the congregation. And I realized from that moment on, I could never again call myself a Christian. It was just a blinding spark. It was almost like I had a stroke, but it wasn't a medical problem. It was a psychological moment. It was like a psychic break. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Psychic break was it. But that was the beginning of, of a, a glorious freedom that's only gotten better since, since then, 10 years ago. Hmm. So what happens? What happens in your personal life? What happens in your spiritual life? What things do you want to say about these 10 years? Well, Nick, it's really interesting. I did not, I was not aware that I wasn't taking care of myself emotionally or spiritually. And Buddhism, the, the little I've learned in these 10 years is it's about self-care. It's about putting the airbag on your own face so that you can be of service to somebody else, as opposed to just giving and giving and getting depleted to the point of you're crippled, which is what I experienced in Christianity. I never heard them talk about self-care in Christianity. Maybe I was just gone on those they, the days they, they talked about it. but No, no, no. I also have that impression. I think the things that sort of ring in my head from when I was, when I was living in a devoted Christian way was, you know, give the shirt off your back and you, you're just, you're, you can never give enough. And you, right. if you, if you keep anything, then you've, you've not lived up to the standard. It's a very, it's a very, it's a very challenging standard. That's why we talk about guilt in these ways because you oh, because you live yeah. with this constant knowledge that you are a a sinner and a, a broken human a fallen human would be the language and and that you can never live up to this impossible standard set by this Jesus that we have that we have built in the 2000 years since he lived right right and what you spoke about guilt oh my god it is so wonderful not to have any guilt anymore. Imagine them telling people that it's wrong to really enjoy yourself. To If you enjoy yourself too much, oh, you're giving in to sin. I must be the biggest sinner in the world. <laughs> and you know what else? I laugh now. I laugh when people think I'm insane. Because I just, I have such glee and such joy in my heart. And I just find myself, my, like I told you I got my black belt uh, last May in Taekwondo. Oh, right. And my karate instructor one day said to me, uh, Michael, sir, you sound deranged. 
(laughs) 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 And he was serious just because I, I love life. I am so tethered to life. I, I just, I look up at the mountains outside my bedroom window and down into my quarter acre of glory, my little garden. And oh my God, I find such joy now that I'm not, I don't have this lodestone of grief and misery and despair and sin dragged around my neck. I don't have any sin in my mind. And of course, people are clucking their tongues and going, oh, well, (laughs) you're going to hell. Thank God I'm going to hell because I do not want to be in a heaven populated by people who think they're better than me. And yet this freed you to discover or rediscover the very spirituals that your very Christian faithful grandmother gave you. So here, yes. you, here you are singing more authentically and passionately songs of the Christian God than you probably ever did before. Absolutely. However, I will say this, Nick. My people in slavery were so desperate for any kind of relief from the whipping and beating and raping. If the master had been Muslim, they would have been Muslim. So this is a, a language that was forced on them. And they found solace in it, and, and God bless them for being able to, if it helped them live one more day longer with that bit of consolation, I'm all for it. But, but I, I have to point out, they were, it's, it's like Christianity at the, with a gun leveled at you. Oh, you will believe or, or you'll be killed. And someone recently said to me, oh, at least the, the Christians had Jesus. And I was like, yeah, he did a lot for them, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> no, he didn't. So, and I'm not blaming, I'm just, just the facts. Yeah, so I, I just, I just, I love this, you called it epic. I love the operatic epic story of my people. And, and my journey through this world, I am now so kind to myself because of Buddhism. I believe that religion should serve me. I don't believe I should be serving religion. That sounds like a, a dream for someone who's making a business out of a philosophy. But I only want to be you know, cleaving to certain ideals as long as they serve me, as long as they make my life better. If if I become a slave to something else, then it's no good to me anymore. Does that make sense or does that sound selfish or what do you think? No, I, I, I feel like what I've enjoyed so much about this conversation, and I've enjoyed multiple times throughout this conversation, you distilling a thought that feels extraordinary, not in the kind of slang word of extraordinary, but um, in that it's majestic or something, but like extraordinary in that it is outside the ordinary way that people speak of these things. And so to say that I want the religion to serve me and I don't want to serve the religion is deeply antithetical to the... Christian paradigm and certainly the way I was raised, but it is the way it should be. It is the way we, we don't, we don't go to our therapist to have that person give us a structure for us to worship. The therapist is there to hear us and we use the therapist to help us, to free us from burdens and to give us strength and and maybe new modes of behavior through which we can live a healthier, uh, more emotionally and psychologically stable life. That's what religion should be doing too. That's what, that's what we should be doing. But to hear you say it, to hear these things distilled in this way, it can sound, I'm sure it does sound quite shocking 
to some people. So no, I, I don't find it shocking. I don't think it's selfish. It's just hard-earned wisdom. And I think that that's, I enjoy hearing it. I relish hearing people distill hard-earned wisdom into thoughts that are, that they feel clean and clear and concise. So no, I, I like it. Oh, good. Good, good. Because I, I think there's a whole lot of love to give to ourselves. And like, you know, I'm a gardener. I, I grow exotic plants, mostly from the Jurassic and Triassic periods. They're endangered species now. And, but I love, they send up precious few leaves every year. And I just think I find so much religion in watching these plants do their thing because they toil not, neither do they spend. Solomon, mm. <laughs> arrayed in all his glory, was not arrayed such as one of these. And I am not someone who quotes the Bible. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but, but these flowers, seriously, these and they're mostly leaves, that is what tethers me to this world. The beauty, the simple beauty. Like I spoke of simple kindness before. To me, it's just all so simple. Just walk with a light step and be kind to other people. And if you see someone hurting and if you can help it, and I think Buddhism has helped me, but I can't say it's all Buddhism. I was, I think I was always a little bit like this and it's made me want to be more of myself. That's beautiful. Michael, I have adored this interview, actually. I've loved this conversation. And I, I wanted to ask you one last question, which is, you're in this beautiful place. 10 years is really not that long. You know, you've lived a long life. 10 years is just a fraction of it at this point. But it feels like it's an entirely new life. What is it like? What do you see now ahead of you? And what do you want out of life with however many more 10-year chunks you have left in it? Well, Nick, you, you give such hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> I see many more conversations like this because this to me has been extraordinary because I don't, I think I said to you, I don't get to speak this openly, this, this honestly, very often, because most people just don't want to hear. But I, I see and I hope, my grand hope, my big hope is that there will be a flowering after this two years or two and a half years of, of this pandemic. There will be a flowering and an outpouring of understanding and love and compassion and, and questing for, for who are we really and what can we do better? Because in 1918, after that was over, that pandemic, we had a golden age. They called it the Roaring Twenties. Mm. So I don't know if we're going to have another Roaring Twenties like that, but this time I hope it's not just about drinking champagne from slippers. I hope it's about delving deep into our psyche as a nation and doing something better this time than we did a hundred years ago or 10 years ago. Well, I think that's something I could get behind, Michael. Let's do it. But let's also drink a little bit too. Is that okay? Oh, it's okay. <laughs> it's a requirement, Nick. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you. I know you, all of that is authentic. It rings true because you were so open and honest and generous, and I, I just love it. I love it so much. So, th so thank you for everything you gave to me and to us, whoever's listening in this conversation. My deepest pleasure, Nick. Thank you. And thank you all out there for listening.
you know, does it does it actually hurt to smile at someone? <laughs> just, and I'm not talking about some fake bullshit. I'm talking about something that comes from your heart and you actually think, how can I make the world a better place just in this one instant? Yeah. But, no, but maybe that sounds... No, I, I think that is the core, but I think the reason it's complex is that it's it's so hard to get through. There's so many factors that cloak certain people's abilities to feel that way universally, to feel that way, because everyone feels that way with someone. And it starts right. with your clan and then moves on through other generalizations, right? But then it's, it's but hard it's, to get to the universal. That's the only thing I will arm wrestle you about, Nick. Mm. Is it, is that, really that hard maybe not or complex i don't know you have to get over people's fears right where do people why are people afraid to love because you're vulnerable when you love you instantly become vulnerable oh, your your right. your belly is exposed i mean we spend all our time hiding our holding our heart and hiding it so that people won't savage us, won't won't pierce us to the quick. Mm. So I just I wish I wish we were weren't so afraid all the time. I understand why we are. I am. I I, I don't unburden myself to to just anyone on the street. Um, I save that for my intimates. I think it's so simple, and I think. Simple kindness is what could change everything. Mm. That if I were a preacher, I would preach about simple kindness every day. Hey, how are you? Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. And like actually seeing them. Mm. 